This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Welcome to Matsplained. Have you ever wondered why, instead of stepping over the abyss, you hurtle into it? Or how jam labels are printed? Or, judging by these questions, why Matt Armitage is not held in a maximum security installation? Hey, Rich. Um, well, th- yeah, I mean, don't waste your money on, on Supermax. Just put me in one of those storage lockers, then I can uh, <laughs> surprise someone on an episode of Storage Wars. You got me! Um, no, I want my money back. <laughs> it's an auction. <laughs> All bids are final. Um, no, we're going. We're going with uh, more weird science this week. Hence the strange questions, um, because holidays they just yeah. they just never ending at the moment. Monday, Thursday. Uh, then of course there's my excitement at the coronation of King Charles next week. Do I spell uh, sarcasm? Not at all. King Jafar no. received uh-huh. his uh, invitation, but just so happens he's washing his fur that day. Uh, he said he'll catch the uh, next coronation. His his crown's out at the Menders anyway. Uh-huh. So, okay. So, yeah, instead of the usual weird science style show, I thought we could do a segment about Charles, currently the Prince Regent, and how much I love his jams and biscuits. Um, I'm pretty sure we should probably stick with, with tech, Matt. Not even a story about how the labels on Dutchy Organic Jams are printed? Um, um, I don't know. I mean, uh, I'll be honest. I mean, that one had me awake all night. There was so much (laughs) adrenaline flooding through my body after I watched it. And I know Richard doesn't sound excited, but of course, you guys listening can't see that he's actually wearing a T-shirt with Charles and Camilla kissing on it. I've Um, even got a tea towel as well. Yeah, wrapped around his head like a bandana. It's a bit strange. Um, the reason he's wearing the Rupert Bear trousers is not immediately obvious, but he is looking very, very spiffy. Uh, for me, it's going to be the, the most exciting social event since ooh, probably since I last serviced my car. Um, it is pretty special, but uh, we are here to talk about science and technology, as you said, not talk about jammy royals. Uh-huh. Uh, so we'll start with, uh, well... This week in AI, really. Um, this story is from Futurism and New York Times. Uh, this is about Jeffrey Hinton, Dr. Jeffrey Hinton. Mm-hmm. He's one mm-hmm. of the pioneers of AI. He's been a key worker at Google's AI development division over the past decade. Uh, he's just gone public this week with his decision to quit the company. He told them last month, sometime in April. And he stated that uh, part of him now regrets his work in AI development and creation. And he adds that he finds it hard not to envisage bad actors, I think he means me, using the technology to do bad things. Uh, and that, I, I guess, raises the question of whether or not you, you think we might start to see more of this kind of action, you know, scientists in AI development quitting or, you know, turning their back on the work or I don't know. Well, I mean, this is one of the reasons that we need to come back to this story more fully, um, mm. even though all, all 
we seem to do is talk about AI. Uh, we've seen programmers uh, over the past few months claiming that the machines are self-aware. We've seen yeah. uh, other uh, senior AI staff quitting uh, after pointing out ethics gaps in the work of some of the big name developers. Uh, Dr. Hint Hinton, um, he's a, a Turing Prize winner, by the way, uh, is notable because he's considered by many to be the godfather of AI. He began mm -hmm. pioneering neural networks way back in the 1970s, uh, a neural network that he built with some of his students in Toronto in the, uh, well, the first part of uh, this millennium, uh, which uh, analyzed photos and could identify common objects was bought by Google in 2012. And that system led to the development of models like we're seeing now, ChatGPT and Google's Bard. Uh, and Bard, I mean, I keep forgetting I have to remember mm. to go and play with it a bit more. I mean, you know, we're reporting it slightly breathlessly. Um, um, but is, is this news to anybody else uh, you know, and, and should other people really kind of get excited about this news or worked up even about this news? Yeah, I mean, I'm just generally breathless because, uh, you know, I'm out of shape. But um, <laughs> going back to your previous question, yeah, I mean, we're seeing this growing wave of people in the field, scientists, researchers, policymakers, even entrepreneurs, mm. all seem to be very nervous about where this machine learning technology seems to be heading. They're nervous um, because of the implications of black box technologies, you know, things that we can't look inside and see how they work. Uh, nervousness about the reinforcement of biases in the data sets, about potential job destruction, about national security, uh, about machines creating code and running that code autonomously. So for someone like Dr. Hinton to, you know, get to this stage to do this, it's mm. a bit like one of those Cold War spy movies when, yeah. you know, the top spy defects. Yeah. He, he says he quit Google so that he can speak freely about his concerns regarding machine intelligence. And that's not a suggestion that Google was in any way muzzling him. You know, a normal part of any job is that you have to respect certain boundaries with the company when you're speaking publicly, especially when you could be seen as speaking on the company's behalf. Was he one of the guys on the, um, the open letter? Was he one of the signatories suggesting that the development should be paused? No, he wasn't. Um, and I guess that goes back to that point about acting in his capacity as a Google employee. But he is or has stated to the New York Times that he's concerned that AI technology is developing much faster than even he and other people working in the field had anticipated. Uh, and he mentions that until certainly last year, he thought that Google was a responsible steward of this kind of technology, but that he's seen with the integration of chat GPT into Bing's search engine, you know, Google has just kind of rushed out into the race with, with Bard. Hmm. And he's worried that this sense of competition, I mean, the, the number of AI models we've seen launched just in the past, you know, few weeks, yeah. that, that this competition seems to be creating its own unstoppable momentum. And Hinton mentions that he thought it would be, you know, 30 to 50 years before machine intelligence would surpass human intelligence. But then he notes that the changes and the acceleration that we've seen over the last five years, and mm. as you and I have pointed out on the show, 
even the acceleration we've seen over the past few months of those publicly released models, yeah. you know, obviously he fears that we're going to, to get to the reality of that beyond human level machine intelligence much, much sooner than that 30 to 50 years. Now, you, you did mention that there were a couple of reasons uh, that people should be taking notice of this. Um, so what's the second one? Well, the second one is actually, you know, more of an upside because scientists are suddenly important again. The geeks are back. The geeks are back. You know, in the, the post-Second World War period, the 1950s and 1960s, we had the space race. People were building computers. <laughs> scientists were heroes. Yeah. You know, maybe they weren't on kind of the same level as sportsmen and movie stars, but they were household names during that period. They would regularly be on TV, on chat shows. Mm -hmm. They'd be profiled in magazines and newspapers. And we've kind of seen that fade over over the decades. You know, today, probably most people couldn't name the team that decoded DNA or even developed the mRNA carrier vaccines that allowed the COVID vaccines to be developed so quickly. Mm. But those same people probably know the names of the winners on every season of Love Island. You know, so we we seem to be seeing a oh, little dear. bit of that again, a, a kind of a research renaissance, if you will. Um, suddenly, Dr. Hinton is in the news. Arguably, you know, that should have happened decades ago. You know, why weren't we publicly picking his brains before now? Or mm. if we were, uh, you know, I mean, people were, but it would be put in some dimly lit corner of the internet. But suddenly we're waking up to the fact that we can't just ignore the work scientists do and then deal with the fallout when that technology goes public, mm -hmm. that we should be talking to them about their research, about the implications of that research and having that public dialogue. Oh, well done, Matt. I feel really proud. You've taken a negative story and you've actually highlighted the positive aspects. Well, I do apologize and I'll make sure I never do it again. So um, <laughs> in the interests of uh, letting the people decide, uh, this is another chat GPT related story. This one's from a new scientist, uh, this time about using the chat bot to automate tasks in chemistry labs. Uh and that's one of the uh, reasons that I really have to do the work and get back with that episode on exactly what these models can do mm. uh, in terms of automating the work that we all do uh, and how people can go about training them to do that work. And as you can see, the real reason for my sloth, the what part is easy, the how part is quite hard. Yeah. Um, and as I think we mentioned on an earlier show, teaching an artificial intelligence how to do chemistry, do chemistry, I sound like an idiot, how to do chemistry is hard. Uh, teaching them, you know, anything requiring expert levels of knowledge is really difficult. And the attempts to create science-focused AI, well, you know, the results have been patchy, like Facebook's mm. example, to, to say the least. Now, a team at the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology at Lausanne is trying to change that. I think we seem to be featuring them pretty much every week at the moment. Yeah, so far. Uh, yeah. Um, they've augmented a version of ChatGPT to enable it to access scientific research and analyze libraries of molecules and chemical reactions, uh, which it can now do as the experiments and reactions progress or as it imagines them progressing. 
and the hope is that this kind of real-time evaluation and access to, to data is going to make these models much more accurate in kind of real-world situations. Is that in the hope then that by um, evaluating the data in real time, the models will create uh, more accurate and consistent results? Yeah, and actually be capable of running those tasks autonomously. They called this new model uh, ChemCrow. I have no idea where the name comes from. And it compared it in uh, lab-based tasks with the standard chat GPT model. Uh, in case you're wondering, you know, what kind of tasks, because chemistry can seem quite esoteric. Well, synthesizing drugs, for example, they asked both models to synthesize uh, atorvastatin, a widely used blood pressure medication. The standard chat GPT failed to come up with a, a workable methodology for synthesizing the compound. ChemCrow came up with the quantities, the timings, and the required lab conditions for a workable solution. And across the same 12 tasks, ChemCrow had an accuracy rate of 90% versus 50% for ChatGPT. What about, you know, the slightly important things of uh, poisoning and toxicity? Well, I mean, that's not necessarily an issue for every reaction, but right. for drugs and many common compounds, yes, of course, that's... Uh, a risk. And, uh, you know, the technology isn't there yet. The team admit that ChemCrow had trouble distinguishing whether a synthesis was novel or toxic. But that issue of whether it's novel or not, or even if the, the model is hallucinating, that's not maybe as big an issue as it might appear. Mm. Because at this point, the model is making suggestions, not executing, it's not connected. So, right. right. Uh, as long as the methodology is being checked by qualified chemists, even those missteps could be useful because they could potentially unlock new methods of synthesizing those compounds or even mm. methods to synthesize new ones. So from a scientific perspective, even those hallucinations may be useful data. Well, I mean, I'm sure there are people out there who who watch Breaking Bad, um, which kind of raises that question. Could this kind of thing be used to create um, illegal drugs or, or substances, for example? Uh, yeah, for some reason, some people call me Heisenberg. But anyway, um, well, as the uh, New Scientist po uh, piece points out, all the uh, steps for that kind of thing are already in the public domain. So the right, answer is right. yes, but it's not necessarily putting new tools in the hands of criminals. Mm -hmm. The issue really comes if those models are linked to the tools of production or the tools of synthesis as well. Well, it just so happens uh, <laughs> that a, a team at Carnegie Mellon University in the U.S., have been working on similar ideas. They've created an augmented version of ChatGPT4. They've linked it to an automated chemistry lab, and they tested that hypothesis by requesting that it create substances like heroin and sarin gas, and the model actually refused. So I'm assuming that those controls were built into the core of the ChatGPT model. Mm. So there do seem to be these mechanisms there that can prevent dangerous materials from being produced by these mm. models. And gosh, I don't even have time to do a, a silly story. Uh, there's so much AI out there, there's no time for fun. I'll have to uh, do it after the break. Well, 
fun free positivity um, we'll make a uh, self-help guru out of Matt just yet uh, when we come back circular cars yep you heard right circular cars here on Matt Splained on BFM 89.9 Folk Metal, BFM 89.9. BFM 89.9, the business station. My name is Rich Bradbury, and welcome back to Matt's Plained. Before the break, uh, you made me promise, I guess, everyone, circular cars. Um, is that a thing? Um, vehicles and automobiles that are around... Uh, sorry, everyone, I've clickbaited you again. Um, no, uh, we're talking about circular in terms of circular economy. So we're talking about um, conservation. So <sighs> this, I know, I'm sorry. This is an advance by an automotive parts manufacturer in Canada that would enable automakers to come a step closer to creating those circular economies. So um, this is about aluminium. A lot of aluminium gets used in the production of cars. You know, it's malleable, it's strong, it's lightweight, it's affordable. Car makers already use quite a lot of recycled aluminium in the production of their vehicles. Mm. Old cars are scrapped and that aluminium is salvaged and reused. And that's great. You know, that's what you want to see, right? Mm. But that recycled aluminium is still carbon intensive. Uh, blocks of the recycled material are heat treated at 550 degrees centigrade, which is quite warm, um, for up to 24 hours to melt any other metals and impurities. And it distributes those impurities evenly throughout the metal. Mm -hmm. And then to strengthen it further, often some new aluminium will be added to that mix as well. Now, let me guess. Now, someone has invented a machine that takes that scrap metal and turns it into new cars. Well, yeah, you've just gone and ruined it, haven't you? <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, they've built a, a machine that turns base metal into gold. Well, silver gold for cars in this instance. Okay. Uh, it's called SHAPE because a good name comes before a useful acronym. Uh, SHAPE stands for Shear Assisted Processing and Extrusion, which tells you nothing. Um, <laughs> essentially, scrap aluminium bars are pushed into the machine. And I shouldn't have chosen a story about aluminium because it's actually one of the words I find most difficult to pronounce. Uh, anyway, the scrap metal bars are pushed into the machine. It rotates and heats them, and then it shapes them into the required car components. The heating on site redistributes those impurities in the scrap bars. So what is then created is already strong enough to, to use. And one of the reasons this is so, this is, uh, so important and why this counts as a, a smart materials story is because the transformation to electric cars is going to see us kind of exponentially increase our use of aluminium in the car mm. industry uh, for battery components, for battery casings, and also for all the other weight saving elements that you need because of the weight of the batteries. So yes, uh, it's a great idea that's taking shape oh. and yeah, that groan was well-deserved. Uh, and moving the industry closer to that goal, as I said, of being a circular economy. It, and is that the weird story you were going to tell at the end of the first part or not? 
Okay, I realized when going through it, it's perhaps less weird than it is boring. But um, boring... I, I, I wouldn't say it's boring. Well, yeah, okay. Slightly on the dullish side. Um, but, you know, boring things are worthwhile too. Take us, for example. Um, this, is, uh, this is a slightly weirder story. Um, this is a way to write in water. So we all know how writing with ink works, right? So you scribble your stuff and the layer of ink from the pen bonds with the paper and your words basically stay there. Uh, we've also invented pens that can write underwater and pads that can be written on underwater. So um, divers can use them to communicate and fish can send in their orders to Uber Eats because, you know, cell reception is tricky underwater. Gosh, if anyone could see Richard scowling at that pathetic <laughs> attempt at, at a joke. But anyway, uh -huh. what about the idea of actually writing in liquids? Why, why would you need to do that is my first question. Well, we'll, we'll get to that. Um, you know, there, there's already ink in water. Um, squids have ink, but we don't have records of the great works they produce because in water ink disperses. Not necessarily any longer. <laughs> yes, that joke was worse. Uh, a team at Germany's uh, Johannes Gutenberg uh, University in Mainz has come up with a method to create long-lasting writing or doodles in liquids. So the technique uses a resin bead inside uh, a rolling platform of liquid. The bottom plate of the platform is coated with ink. So the bead can actually be steered through the liquid. I'm guess it's a bit like one of those rolling maze kids toys where yeah. you tilt it up and you make the, the ball go around so basically oh, I those as a kid yeah exactly um now now you can use this to write in water huh. that's even cooler um basically you're you're just using gravity to tilt it around as the bead moves through the water it creates these kind of tunnels or challenge uh, channels through the liquid which have a different acidity so they have a lower acidity level and okay. that attracts the ink so it's a bit like that runaway black hole that we were talking about a couple of weeks back the one that has all the stars forming in its wake here in the wake of that bead it's shapes and patterns and even letters that are being uh, being formed um now does this mean then that potentially these squid that you were talking about could have written something that's dissipated? Uh, they've already created that perfect thing and it's just dissipated because I don't know. How long does it last for this thing? Well, I, at the moment, it lasts for about 15 minutes. And I'm sure there is a squid Shakespeare out there. Yeah, it's I'm just, guessing you know, so. Yeah. You know, he's and just a library. Uh, to us. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, right. but, but bearing in mind that in this 15 minutes, this is not tidal water but the team thinks they can actually harden the letters or shapes pretty permanently um, by using uv light now the question you asked earlier is why yeah. why would anyone do this um i wondered that too but new scientist thankfully has the answer well art is an obvious example so you can create artworks impregnated in a liquid uh, you can use it as a way to store data Nobody's going to expect you to keep your bank password inside your Starbucks mug. Uh, but also, you can use it as a way to mark different liquids in a solution. So this is where we go back to that chemistry story. Hmm. You can move different liquids 
in the solution to the position they need to be for the synthesis to to occur. So not only is it weird, it is potentially quite useful. Uh, so for this next story, and please take this next question in the spirit in which it's intended, do you suffer from performance anxiety? I'm, so, I'm sorry, you sound like a, a dodgy late night ad. <laughs> <laughs> well, I am probably not that far away, but no. Okay, when you when you watch a movie, there's always that pivotal scene where the hero or heroine has this task to perform. Uh, maybe right. it's a complex yep. kill shot, could be defusing a bomb, or it could just be taking the cake out of the oven at the perfect moment. Yep. And it's always down to seconds. You know, the, the heroine is sweating, but she doesn't crack. She keeps her composure and she snips the red wire and the villain dies and the cake is absolutely fine. But of course, in real life, it's not always so rosy. You know, when the stakes are high, many of us understandably do wobble. Yep. You know, someone tells you, oh, you've got to hold this ladder or your friend's going to fall. Well, no one asked you whether you have sweaty hands. And of course, <laughs> your friend falls two stories. You're enjoying this a little bit too much, I think. I'll admit it, I am. Yes. Yeah, um, yeah. Scientists at uh, Carnegie Mellon, that's twice in, in one week, think that they've discovered the brain mechanism that causes us to flop. So in tests with monkeys, the team gave them tasks uh, with and without rewards and monitored their brain waves. They found that these cells responded differently to the tasks depending on the value of the reward. And they found that the monkeys tuned their responses to the tasks according to those rewards. So where they had anticipation of a big reward, they would put more effort in. Got and it. this effort would decrease as the reward decreased in value. I mean, there's nothing massively surprising there. I mean, you know, that that's just kind of basic psychology. But what they found was these responses created a kind of signature of neural responses, uh, a, a signature essentially of planned movements and responses and how they correlate to each other. So basically a map of what they're intending to do. But interestingly, they found that when there was a really big payout on offer, the network somehow broke down, that the planning for each movement decreased rather than increased, and that the communication from movement to movement actually blurred, making it harder to distinguish one element in the sequence from another one. Now, let me take a guess here. That suggests that the reward and the motor centers of the brain are linked yeah, so anticipation of a reward sharpens and heightens our response. Huh. But beyond that certain tipping point, our response actually goes in the opposite direction. When the reward is too great, literally the system becomes overwhelmed. So our ability to plan and execute the task effectively is compromised. Right. That's the reason that you know we miss the World Cup penalty or we miss the kill shot or the reason huh. that the meringue collapses on itself in the oven. You know, in short, at the critical moment, we flub it. So the thinking is, with further research, an individual may be able to track their brainwaves and be notified when stress suggests that they're about to choke. Because life isn't like a movie. We don't always get 
the sequel, we don't always get the reboot. Sometimes we just need to get it right the first time. And these tools may be able to help us do it. Huh. Well, there you go. Thank you. That's uh, Apple's new uh, thing coming on their new Apple iWatch, I would imagine, next time around. What? Don't flub it. Don't flub it. Or in a, the case of the lemon meringue pie, don't flan it. Yeah, I, I'll, I'll give that as a slogan for Nike. I think just do it. It's had its day. Don't flub yeah. it. Don't flub it. <laughs> All right. Uh, thanks for the show today, Matt. Great one. Thank you very much. Uh, of course, if you did miss uh, this show, please download the podcast wherever you normally get it from. We recommend the BFM app, which is available in the Apple App Store or Google Play for all other stuff. You can find Matt on his Substack, which is available at substack.culturepop.com. There you go. This has been Matt Splain here on BFM 89.9, the business station. listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.